You may be seated and open up your Bibles back to Hebrews chapter 9. I was thinking this week, as we're going to be dealing in the realm of analogy, I thought of an analogy for the gospel itself. I thought, you know, the gospel is is like a diamond. And my job in preaching is to hold forth this diamond week after week, just to hold it forth before you, before your eyes, that the light of the Holy Spirit can, can shine through the diamond, refracting before the eyes of your heart, as it were, the dazzling glory of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what it, that's what it means to be a believer. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so we hold forth the diamond of the gospel that the light of the Spirit may shine through it that you can see glory. Week after week, text after text, what I do is I simply turn the diamond ever so slightly and it, and it reveals a different facet of the gospel, and it refracts the light of the Spirit in, in just a slightly different way that reveals different hues among the spectrum of grace. So in one, in one text of Scripture, we may, be, we may be looking at the facet of the gospel that pictures salvation as liberation from a wicked tyrant who reigns over the kingdom of darkness. And so you were hearing the words... He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been rescued. Another text and another turn of the diamond and suddenly we're the walking dead, mindlessly wandering through the graveyard of this world until the quickening call of God comes and makes us alive and we hear Paul say, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, He has made us alive, for by grace you have been saved. Last week, in another, another turn of the diamond revealed to us the heavenly tabernacle, where Jesus, our great high priest, officiated the once and for all final day of atonement, offering Himself upon the altar of the cross and then rising again from the altar and ascending into the heavenly tabernacle, sprinkling the throne of grace and then sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having accomplished eternal redemption and there to intercede for us on our behalf. So we read, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The Bible uses all of these glorious word pictures, all of these glorious images, these different facets of the diamond of the gospel in order that we may be stunned anew and afresh week after week as the glory of God and His grace towards sinners in Jesus Christ is revealed in a different way. And so this week, once again, another text and another turn of the gospel and suddenly we're out of the heavenly tabernacle and we're into the attorney's office. For in this passage, the author is going to describe the gospel in terms of a last will and testament. And so I want you to imagine yourself, if you will, that you're going about life, you're working a dead-end job, you're struggling to make ends meet, 
Some of you are saying, I don't have to imagine too hard. One day, when you get home from work, you open up the mailbox and mixed in with bill after bill that you don't have the money to pay is a very official-looking envelope from a well-known and respected law firm. And, and you slowly tear the envelope open and you read the enclosed document and to your astonishment you find that someone very important and very wealthy has died. You've, you've heard of him from a distance. You know that some people love him and others despised him and you, you, you really don't have any dealings with him at all. But as your eyes fall down the lines of the letter and you read, you are astonished to learn that he's included you in his will. You are the beneficiary of a vast and immeasurable estate and you are being summoned to the attorney's office to hear the will read and to receive your inheritance. I want you to Think about what emotions are stirred in your heart in that moment as you hear that he has made you a beneficiary of all that he owns. That he, to borrow from what Mike said earlier, the the words of Jesus, has been pleased to give you the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundations of the earth. What emotions does that evoke in you? Joy? Gratitude? Does it feel like grace? Because it's supposed to. And those are the very emotions that I pray will be stirred up within your heart today. Because this morning I'm going to invite you to the attorney's office, so to speak. And we're going to hear the will of our Lord read. And you're going to hear about the inheritance which he has been pleased to leave to you. And I hope that by the end of this message that you will feel the joy and taste the sweetness of free and sovereign grace because that's what it is. You don't work for the inheritance. You don't earn the inheritance. You don't deserve the inheritance. The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And I hope that we come to experience that this morning. The Spirit's purpose in this passage is to teach us about the new covenant gospel that we may rejoice in its redemptive truth. That much is clear from the very outset, from verse 15, which is the main point of this passage. The author writes, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Okay, We're talking about the new covenant, have been since the beginning of chapter 8. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that... Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. How do you convey eternal and glorious realities to finite creatures like us with minuscule attention spans? Well, as happens throughout the course of Scripture, God communicates with us by means of analogies that employ human language and and work with human experiences. We've already seen this at work in the examples that I referenced just a few minutes ago, right? Salvation is like being being rescued out of an evil kingdom of darkness and 
and being brought into a kingdom of righteousness and light. Colossians 1.12. Or salvation is like being raised from death to walk in newness of life. Ephesians 2. The change that is wrought in us as a result of this regenerating, life-giving work of the Spirit is like changing our clothes, putting off the old garments of sin and putting on the new garments of righteousness. It's like that, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Well, that's essentially what our author is going to do in this passage. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looks at the new covenant between God and man, and he looks at the work of Christ on which that covenant is founded, and he looks at the death of Christ by which that covenant was enacted, And he looks at the benefits that we receive as heirs of God because of this new covenant. And he says, you know what that's like? That's like a last will and testament. The new covenant is like God's last will and testament. In that, God is the wealthy, and here's a word I had to look up this week, testator, right? He's the willer. He's the benefactor. He's the one who makes the last will and testament. God is like the wealthy testator. We are the heirs, and it is the death of Jesus that activates that will and enables us to receive his inheritance. It's like a last will and testament. Now, as with every analogy, this one breaks down if you push it too far. Like a rubber band stretched too far, it's going to snap. The new covenant is not... Detail for detail, exactly like a last will and testament. There are differences. For instance, in a legal will, there are three distinct participants, right? There's the testator, the one whose death brings the will into effect, okay? The one whose will it is and who dies to bring that will into effect. There's, number two, the executor. That's the one who executes the terms of the will and disperses the inheritance to, number three, the heirs or the benefactors, those who receive the inheritance. So there's the testator, the executor, and there are the heirs. Three participants in in last wills and testaments in human experience. The testator, however, cannot be the executor because he is, in fact, dead. (laughs) Death prevents him from fulfilling both of those roles. But in the new covenant, Jesus fulfills both roles. He is both the testator who dies in order to bring the will into effect, and he is the executor who takes the will and disperses it to the, to the inheritors or the heirs by means of his Holy Spirit. He is the testator and the executor at one and the same time. And this is what verse 15 means when it says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. As mediator, Jesus both dies to bring the covenant into effect and he executes the covenant by dispersing the inheritance to us. Okay, such an arrangement has no human equivalent because no other human being has ever died to bring a will into effect and then rose again to execute the will's terms. Okay, so we can't push the analogy too far. Also, properly speaking, it's the Father's will that the Son died to bring into effect, and it's the Father's inheritance that the Son distributes as the will's executor. Again, such an arrangement has no human equivalent in in which one person dies and another person's estate is given away. We We don't have an experience like that, but that's the way it is in the New Covenant. 
Because no other human being can be both father and son and spirit. So we must be careful when dealing in the realm of analogy and comparison, not not to press too hard. Instead, what we're doing in verses 15 to 22, in in, in working with this analogy of a last will and testament, we're, we're taking the new covenant and we're taking a last will and testament and we're looking for points of contact between the two. And I think that I find three. I think that there are three points of contact, points of comparison between the new covenant mediated by Christ and a last will and testament that the author wants us to derive from this analogy so that we will be strengthened in our faith and understanding of what actually has transpired in the new covenant. So we're going to walk through those three this morning. One is the primary one, we'll spend most of our time there, and the other two are secondary, and we'll just touch on those at the end, all right? Before I do, though, there is an issue with your text that needs to be cleared up. We need to do a little bit of work before we get into the message. Now, as you heard me about 20 minutes ago reading through this passage, I'm reading in the New American Standard, okay? And you heard me as I was reading through, read the word covenant throughout. Okay, covenant in verse 15, covenant in verses 16 and 17, covenant in verse 18. But some of you here have an English Standard Version or an NIV, and you noticed a switch. Verse 15 has covenant, but verses 16 and 17 have the word will. Others of you have the King James Version, and you have the word testament throughout this passage. So what's going on? Well, the Greek word behind each of these translations is the same. It's the word diatheke. It's the word that is translated covenant or will or testament. In fact, in, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that word, diatheke, is used throughout of the divine covenants. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a diatheke with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant. He made a diatheke with the Old Covenant people of Israel. But by the time the New Testament was written, 1st century A.D., that word, diatheke, had come to be used exclusively of a last will and testament. Now, a covenant is not exactly the same thing as a last will and testament, but they bear some important similarities. And so the author wants to teach us something about the New Covenant, and so what he's doing, he's using a play on words. He's exploiting the fact that the Greek word means both a divine covenant between God and man, like a new covenant, and a last will and testament. And he's going to use that play on words to teach us some things about the new covenant. So, for the sake of clarity, I I want to tell you the way I think this passage ought to be translated. So if you follow along with me, here's the way I think it ought to be translated. This is the way we we will use it this morning. Verse 15 should use the word covenant. It should say this. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 15, he's talking about a divine covenant, the new and the old, between God and man. But verses 16 and 17 should be translated will. For where a will is... There must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a will is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Verses 16 and 17, he's talking about the analogy. He's not talking about a covenant. 
He's talking about a last will and testament. He's saying it's like this. But verse 18 should go back to the word covenant because the author by that time has left the analogy and he's returned back to the idea of a divine covenant between God and man. So verse 15, covenant. Verses 16 and 17, will. Verse 18, covenant. That's the way I think it should be translated. That's the way that we will use it this morning. So what can we learn? What can we learn about the relationship between the new covenant between God and man in Christ and a last will and testament? First, this analogy teaches us that death is essential in order for the covenant to go into effect. Death is essential. It is necessary. This is, in fact, the primary reason why the author uses this analogy at all, the analogy of a last will and testament. And you can see this easily from the way that he begins this section. Look at the way verse 15 starts. He says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We've got to ask ourselves, for what reason? Well, verses 11 through 14 provide that answer. Because Christ has died. Because he has shed his blood to obtain eternal redemption and to cleanse our conscience from dead works. That's why. Because Christ has died, he is the mediator of of a new covenant. Jesus died to accomplish what the old covenant with its sinful and mortal priests who kept on dying and, and these, this worthless blood of animals could never accomplish. Jesus died to obtain eternal redemption and clean consciences for his people. For that reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, what is verse 15 saying? It is saying that it is the death of Christ that redeems sinners and releases to them the eternal inheritance. The new covenant is ratified, it is brought into effect, inaugurated by the death of Jesus. That's the statement, that's the point of the passage, that's what he's saying in verse 15, everything that is following is illustration. So he says, you know what that's like? That's like a will. Verse 16, employing that play on words, diatheke, covenant, will, testament, testament, and he's reinforcing the point that he made in verse 15. He says, for where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. You would agree with that, right? Have you ever seen a will go into effect unless somebody dies? No, it doesn't happen. Okay? What he's saying. For a will is valid only when men are dead. It is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So he's appealing to universal human experience. Everyone knows how a will works. A person makes a last will and testament while still living. Okay? Specifying how and to whom his estate will be divided upon his death. But as long as he, the will maker, the testator, remains alive, the estate remains his and not the heirs. It's only when he dies that the inheritance is then released to those whom he decided should be included in the will. Verse 18. The author then jumps back from the analogy to the old covenant showing that it too was brought into effect by death. Therefore, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. The world is he talking about? Well, the background for this is Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. You may want to turn there. You may not have to. I think it's going to be back here on the screen behind me. But in Exodus 24, it provides us with the account of when Moses, who had been up on the mountain, meeting with God, receiving the terms of the covenant, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, bearing in his hands the terms of the covenant, it describes what happened. Exodus 24 and verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all of the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. We we accept the terms of the covenant. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So clearly the first covenant was ratified amidst a lot of blood, a lot of death. Animals were sacrificed, the terms of the covenant were read, the people swore their obedience to the covenant, and then the blood was sprinkled on the people. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 goes on to say, As a matter of fact, all of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings were sprinkled with blood. On the Day of Atonement, when the the blood of the bulls and the goats was sacrificed, they, they cleansed all of the articles of the temple. There's blood everywhere in the Old Covenant. It is a bloody covenant. Why? In the ancient Near East, Palestine, Israel, long time ago, When a covenant was made between a great king and foreign subjects, maybe he rescues them from a foreign invader, maybe maybe they enter into a covenant with him in order that he not take over their land. Whatever the context of it, when a great king made a covenant with a foreign people in which the king promised certain blessings and protections in exchange for their obedience and their tributes, that covenant was ratified. Literally, the Hebrew word is cut. They cut a covenant because it was ratified with the slaughtering of an animal and the sprinkling of the blood upon those who had sworn obedience to the terms of the covenant. This was a common thing in the ancient Near East. And that sprinkling of the blood and the slaughtering of the animal was an elaborate sign meant to evoke the seriousness of the covenant that was being made. It was saying, in effect, what was done to this animal will be done to you if you break covenant. 
Blood of the animals will not be sprinkled on you if you break covenant. Rather, I will sprinkle your blood on the ground. It's a serious thing. Covenant breakers die. That was the point of the sign. That's exactly what's happening in Exodus 24 at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is saying to Israel, here's my covenant, and covenant breakers die. Because God had rescued his people from the land of Egypt. And he had brought them to Sinai. And he made a covenant with them in which he promised them land and life and blessings and protection and overflowing grace if they would keep his covenant. But he also swore vengeance and threatened cursing and exile and death if they broke his covenant. And what did the people do on that day? Did they accept his terms? Not once, but twice. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then came the bulls and the goats and the blood. And everything is sprinkled, including the people. And you know the rest of the story. Israel broke the covenant. Through, through their unremitting, unrestrained iniquity, they forfeited their inheritance, earning not blessing in life, but cursing in death. Not a, not a land dwelling with milk and honey, but exile in a foreign people's country. That's what they inherited because they broke covenant. And you know what? So have we. That's what you're supposed to get out of Exodus 24 and Hebrews 9. We are covenant breakers, just like the people of Israel. God has given us a law, and he has promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And we, like Adam, have broken his covenant. We have trampled upon God's law, and therefore we have forfeited our claim on eternal life and the abundant blessings promised to those who love God and keep his command. So the whole question of the Bible, I mean, our broken covenant goes all the way back to Genesis 3. From the very beginning of the story, we're lost. So why all these extra pages in the Bible? Why not just death? Genesis 3, they sinned and then they died. The end. The whole rest of the Bible is designed to answer the question, how do covenant breakers still receive the inheritance? The answer came in the law. So says the author in Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What's he thinking of? He's thinking of Leviticus 17.11. A very important verse right in the middle of of the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, where God says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Throughout the first chapters of Leviticus, he's, he's instituted sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and now in, in Leviticus 17.11, right on the heels of the sacrifice of the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, he says, the life of the flesh is represented in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. It is 
blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So what does the law say? What's the answer? How can covenant-breaking sinners still receive the inheritance? Blood is required. Death must be paid. Not, not the death of the covenant-breaker, because once the covenant-breaker's dead, he can't receive the inheritance. Somebody else has got to die in order for covenant-breakers like us to receive the inheritance. The answer of the law was a sinless, unblemished, substitutionary sacrifice. Bulls, goats, lambs in the Old Covenant. The Lamb in the New Covenant. Which is exactly what Hebrews 9.15 has been leading us to. For this great reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death, namely His death, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Stop there. Blood has been shed for redemption of transgressions. Blood has been shed. What's the result of blood being shed? Covenant breakers can become heirs. That's what He says. So that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Blood, taking away sin, allows a sinner to receive the inheritance. That's the whole point of this passage. Jesus Christ is the once for all redeeming sacrifice for sinners. He is the final, infinitely valuable, all-sufficient shedding of blood to which all of the previous sacrifices of the old covenant pointed ahead and found their fulfillment. So do you see the connection between the new covenant and the last will and testament? In the new covenant, God has promised this. This is his will. You want to hear the new covenant read? You want to to come into the attorney's office and hear the will as it's read? Here it is. This is the covenant that I will make with my people after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least of them to the greatest and I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the promised everlasting inheritance. It is fellowship with God and forgiveness of sins. The promise of the new covenant is that the people of God will know him they will be reconciled to him they will love him and keep his commands and he will forgive their sins but that inheritance cannot come unless a death takes place that redeems us from the curse of our sins and releases to us the promised inheritance so the death of christ the shedding of his blood was necessary in order for the new covenant to come into effect And in order for the called to receive their inheritance. That's how it's like a last will and testament. Our obsession with blood, namely the blood of Christ, has been the source of ridicule for centuries now. Among unbelievers. Why Why are you Christians always talking about blood? It's a bloody Religion. Why are you always singing about blood? It's so primitive. It's so grotesque. It's so weird. It's so gross. Moses sprinkling blood, blood flowing everywhere. Blood, 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 blood. And you know what? I get it. I get it. 
I can see how an unbeliever hearing about Moses dipping his hyssop into the blood of a freshly slaughtered bull and sprinkling it on a a huge congregation of people is a little strange. Like, we don't have a human experience to equate that to. I can hear how, how, or I can get how an unbeliever coming into our midst and hearing us stand up and singing joyfully and, and, and full voiced, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What? Is that what y'all do here? Because what time's this service over? Hebrews 9 is written to convince you that we have a blood-drenched, cross-centered gospel and we ought never to be ashamed of it because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We know that the death of Christ for the redemption of transgressors like us was necessary in order for the new covenant to come into effect and for us to receive the everlasting inheritance of fellowship with God and the forgiveness of our iniquities. So, that's the main point of this morning. The new covenant is like a last will and testament in that the death of Christ was the necessary event which brought the new covenant into effect and released the, the eternal inheritance to the heirs. All right, if you get that much out of this sermon, then you've nailed it. But there are two further points of contact I just want to touch on briefly because they're in the text. I think we can legitimately pull them out of this analogy for our benefit. I'm not going to spend much time on either one, but I want to, I want to close with these for your joy. I'm after your joy this morning. First, The new covenant is like a last will and testament in that the inheritance comes to the heirs absolutely, utterly, ridiculously free. In a will, there there are usually, I'm not a lawyer, so there may be exceptions, but that's not the point in this text. There are usually no obligations placed upon the heirs. The inheritance is a free gift given out of the wealth of of the benefactor's estate. In fact, it's him, it's the benefactor, the testator, who has done all of the work to earn all of the wealth. He's the worker. The heirs are the recipients. And so it is in the new covenant with the eternal inheritance of God. The new covenant, not like the old, is not an all this we will do covenant of law. It is a better covenant. Enacted on better promises. It is in all this Christ has done for you, covenant of grace. Even the promises of the new covenant that are found in the Old Testament are always framed in this unconditional, unilateral work, gift of God kind of way. Did you hear it? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my law upon their hearts. I will put my spirit within them. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I am the worker. They are the beneficiaries. In the new covenant of grace, God does all of the work in the person of Christ Jesus. We simply receive the inheritance by faith and say, thank you. 
which is what we do in worship services, is it not? Thank you. We come to hear the will read again and again and again, week after week, receiving it by faith, and we say, thank you. So if by chance you have come in this morning as an unbeliever, and and you've heard me talk about the forgiveness of sins, and you, you by the Spirit have overcome the hurdle of blood, no longer do you see it as something weird and gross and primitive and grotesque. Now you see it as the answer. You, you agree. I see now that if we have sinned and offended a holy God, that there must be blood, there must be death in order for there to be forgiveness. I see it. And you want to be included in his will. What do you do? You do nothing. You believe. You believe the new covenant gospel that I have preached to you and you simply ask Jesus to write you into his will. And he does. You cannot work for the inheritance. You cannot earn the inheritance. The inheritance is not for sale. But God will give it to you for free. All you have to do is ask. That's good news for you this morning. It's good news for those of you who have already been included in this will, for have already known that you're the recipient of this inheritance because, listen, if it's not for sale and it's not earned, you can't lose it. So some of you came in this morning having made a muck of the last week. You are just and as much an heir of God and a recipient of sweet and unbroken fellowship with him and the forgiveness of sins as you were before the week began. Free! I am convinced that if we could simply grasp the meaning of that four-letter word and its connection with the gospel, it would transform our lives. Free. You are the heirs. Not the workers, not the earners, not the buyers. You are the heir. Believe, receive, and say thank you. Lastly, and connected. The last, the new covenant is like a last will and testament in that it is the testator who decides who his heirs are. It's his will that is determinative, and he is utterly sovereign over who receives his estate. The will of the beneficiary is not sovereign, the will of the testator is sovereign. And so it is in the new covenant. Simply put, God decides who receives his inheritance. And I find grounds for making this point as we end this sermon in verse 15. And I want you to look there with me. Who does the author say receives the eternal inheritance? He says it's those who have been called who receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Called which is not the first word that I would have chosen to insert there had I I been writing the book of Hebrews. I would have used the word believe. Those who believe receive the eternal inheritance, which is, by the way, true. But that's not the word that the author uses. He uses the word called. And I find myself asking why. It's because he is thinking of the new covenant as a last will and testament And he is wishing to highlight the sovereignty of God's grace in choosing his own heirs and in calling them to receive his inheritance. In a last will and testament, grace 
is sovereign. It is a one-way, unilateral covenant. A will is not left to chance. It does not say, and my estate and all that I own, I bequeath to whoever there may be who wants it. No, the heirs of the estate are chosen and they are called to receive the inheritance. And listen to me. And so it is in the new covenant, which in no way invalidates the free offer of the gospel that I just made to you. It is true that the heirs of God's estate have been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundations of the world. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. And... It is true that you will be included in his will if you ask him in sincerity of heart today. Chosen and called receive the inheritance. Those who are convicted and call upon his name receive the inheritance. And both are wonderfully and gloriously and biblically true. To use the analogy, God has offered to give his estate to anyone who will go to his executor, go to the mediator, and ask to be included. It's true. But he uses the word called in verse 15 to remind us that grace always goes before and it is always sovereign. So I say to you two absolutely true statements this morning. Statement number one. If you will call out to Jesus and embrace him by faith as your only redeemer, your only savior, and your only king, believing that his blood is sufficient to save you from your sins, you will be saved and you will receive the eternal inheritance. Call out to Jesus and he will save you. That's statement number one. Absolutely true. I would stake my ministry on it. Statement number two. If you call out to Jesus this morning, it's because he first called out to you. And that is absolutely true, and I would stake my ministry on it. Sovereign grace, a free inheritance, and a bloody, redeeming, cleansing death. This is the gospel of the new covenant, and it is glorious. And I commend it to you this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. I want to speak to a moment, for a moment to those who may be here who don't know if they're in the will or not. Don't know if, if the inheritance belongs to you or not. You don't know if you're going to receive fellowship with God and forgiveness of sins or not. To you, I would say the words that the author of Hebrews speaks over and over again. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear him calling, what does that mean? What does that look like? If you hear him calling, call back. If you, if you, if you, feel convicted of your sin and you've been convinced of the truth that I've spoken this morning, then call upon Christ and he will save you. Go to him and say, Jesus, I can't save myself, but I want to be forgiven and he'll forgive you. Go to him and say, I I can't do anything to affect redemption. I, I can't make myself better. I can't cleanse myself. 
and he will cleanse you. Believe that what I've said is true and stake your eternity on it and call upon his name and you will be saved. So do that now. This is a time of response. I invite you to respond to Jesus. Call upon him and he will save you. There is no other way. There's none. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But to the rest, to the children, to the heirs this morning, I want you to meditate for for just a moment as we're going to be singing a, a, a hymn of response. I want you to meditate upon the fact that you didn't earn your inheritance. Therefore, you can't lose it. You are just as much an heir this morning as the day you first believed, as the day when you will step into glory and receive the fullness thereof. So just soak. Soak in free and sovereign grace. Your name was in the will from before the world began. He called you to himself. He died to take away your curse and to give you the blessing. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel free. Do you feel free? Be free this morning. I can't earn it. I can't lose it. God put me in, and he's not going to take me out. Rest in free and sovereign grace. And just do what we do every Sunday morning. Come to the executor's house and hear him read the will and know that it is true of you. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You know me. I am your God and you are my people. And you will dwell forever in the glory of my inheritance in a kingdom which I have prepared for you from before the foundations of the earth. Hear that said and spoken to you, the will as it is read, receive it by faith and say thank you. Lord, I pray that you will do your work in the midst of us this morning. Would you bring worship out of the hearts of believing people this morning? Would you bring worship and faith out of the hearts of unbelieving people? Would you call that they may call upon you? Do your work this morning, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.